like 100 percent um so it's a pleasure to meet you can you please introduce yourself and tell us what you do yeah thank you for having me so my name is micah isogawa and i'm the co-founder and ceo of a company called webacy and webacy we're a security layer for self-custody so in the blockchain crypto space uh, you have your own self-custodied accounts which are accounts that you have to manage the keys for but historically there have been very few tools to help you actually manage and protect the assets within your wallet so we're building tools for that awesome and how did you get into building webacy what was your motivation for it so i've historically been in tech for a while uh, my school life was all engineering and computer science and a lot of my internships were in startups and uh, building and tech and engineering and all of that Post-graduation, though, I was at Microsoft and I was doing cybersecurity and uh, I've known about crypto since 2014. And so that's always been an interest. And so 2021 came around, uh, the stars kind of aligned and I found this problem and I couldn't sleep at night without working on it. And so here we are today. That's cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to just starting the business? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, and I grew up between Japan and Minnesota, funny enough. And so I went back and forth, um, half Japanese. And so that has kind of colored a lot of the way I live and my experiences and so on. So, um, yeah, my, my background, again, it's like I, I went through engineering in school. Um, I had I originally actually wanted to be an astrophysicist. And so I took some classes for that, but then spent some time working in a completely different field. So when I got back to school, I changed my major. I studied AI, actually, which is now funny because it's a one of the hotter topics, uh, it kind of went from blockchain to AI, but um, yeah, all of these tools and skill sets that I gather, gathered over my lifetime so far has helped me succeed so far at what we're building at Webacy today. So you were working at Microsoft post-graduation. Um, what was the pivot to, to Web3 like? Because I assume you, you had something to do, you were working in something related to AI, cybersecurity, Microsoft. And what made you decide to make that shift? Yeah, so, I mean, I've been tracking blockchain and playing around with it since the kind of pretty early on. Um, and then in 2021, that's when um, the NFT bull run kind of started to hit, right? You know, NFTs and communities were huge. And in 2018 was when all of the DeFi stuff started to kind of fire up. And so I knew about the space um, since then, but... Basically in 2021, I was at Microsoft. I was working around the blockchain, doing my own personal stuff. And I, I personally got hacked um, two times. Um, and then I realized that the space didn't have good enough user experience uh, to support millions and millions of people entering the blockchain. And I really think blockchain technology is super powerful and has the opportunity to change and improve a lot of the human systems that we have. So I wanted to do something about it. And that's what kind of promoted me wanting to start Webacy and wanting to work on this problem of digital asset safety. And when you say you got hacked, what exactly happened? Did you just sign a malicious transaction, that sort of thing? Yeah, embarrassingly, it was totally my fault. Uh, I was I was whitelisted for this mint uh, and I got a DM. It happens all the time, right? Like you get DMs uh, on Discord and Twitter and I clicked it thinking it was the real thing uh, because I was. it was around the time of when the Mint was supposed to happen. It seemed legitimate, all the things that they do that you, I now know to watch out for and I'm telling other people to watch out for, but it was, it was one of those and then got, got drained for some of my assets. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even the 
most experienced users still get hacked when they're tired or something. Yeah, happens to the best of us. And it happens, it's hilarious. I just read a book um, on scams and exploits and con artists, basically. And they play so much to your emotions. Because if you think about it, we like to think that we're very logical creatures at the end of the day, but we're really just monkeys that have this abstracted layer of logic applied to us. So at the end of the day, we're a lot of the times we're making decisions on our feelings uh, and our emotions. And so they play really well on that. It's really, it's really quite brilliant. Yeah. And especially when it's a mint situation that you might only have like a certain period of time before it mints out and you're like, oh, this must be the link. I just have to get it. And then all of a sudden, where did my money go? Yeah. Um, and how was that process from, you know, being an employee to raising funds and starting your own company? It's very different. Um, I, the college I went to is very entrepreneur minded. So I think in my head and in all of my history of learning, you're surrounded by these stories of people who make it overnight or these overnight sensations or people who walk up to investors and raise a ton of money. Right. And so in the reality of those stories that you hear and the reality of founders actually building is so different. So um, Webacy is my first company. And when I first went out to raise, quite honestly, it was during the blockchain hype. So it was quite easy to get those first checks in. Um, I have a good background, went, you know, worked at Microsoft, all the things that would traditionally go into a fundable founder. Uh, but then we, when we raised our last round at the end of 2022, so last year, it was a lot harder. So this is after FTX. This is after Terra Luna. This is after all of the down signals of the whole blockchain ecosystem. So VCs were spooked. A lot of them just completely stopped putting money into blockchain and so on. And it's still kind of at that level. And so it was much harder to raise. We're feeling very grateful that we were able to raise a good round. But all of the lessons of founder life, I'm currently in the process of learning. Uh, and each stage, there's a bunch of different challenges. And so very lucky to have a good team around me and a good set of people that are supportive. What, what have you found the most challenging as a founder so far? Because I bet there's 100, time, 100 things happening at the same time. Yeah, my answer will probably change every day. Uh, it's a different thing every single day. Uh, but one thing I think is the people are the best part and the worst part of every job you do, right? And it's the same thing with this company. It's the team that we've built here is the absolute best part. But it's also things like how do you motivate or how do you keep a team motivated and happy, especially because we're remote and a lot of teams now are in a remote world. And so a lot of the times I'm thinking about, okay, how am I keeping my team happy? Do they feel fulfilled? And that's not always in line with how the company is doing. Obviously, if your people are doing great, the company is doing great. But sometimes you're thinking about, you know, bottom line go growth goals of your company. And so you stop thinking about, are you doing enough to build team culture in a remote environment? So all of these things are back and forth. But that's probably one. Uh, another one is obviously like trying to build and get traction during a down market in this bear market time, quote unquote. Um, but luckily, we've seen good progress and traction even within this bear or subdued market. So we're, we're very optimistic about what the future looks like. That's cool. That's cool. And as a side note, I saw that you were an acrobat for Cirque du Soleil. Please explain. Yeah, it's, um, it doesn't really make sense, but it's a very fun, like, uh, what is it? When you're breaking ice with people and you're talking about your fun fact, that is usually my go-to fun fact. Uh, but yeah, I, I grew up doing acrobatics um, and training for it kind of casually. It was a hobby, just like you would go to soccer practice after school. I would go to circus practice. Um, and then by high school, I was very intense with it every day after school, multiple hours a night. Um, but never really thought I would do anything with it. 
but had the chance to work for a really great circus company uh, while I was at school. So I took some time off of school to work for them, ended up working for Cirque du Soleil. In total, it was around two and a half years and then went back to school after that. So very fun experience, kind of random, but met some of my, my best friends so far. Yeah, that's actually pretty wild because it's not something you just do casually because it requires a lot of dedication. Like, you know, they're full on athletes and, you know, to do the kind of crazy, um, like seriously risky things, you have to really be on point. Yeah, and have you seen think, the show before? Yeah, I have actually. When I was really young, but I have seen like a Circus de Soleil show and it's insane. I think the tipping point for me was, was when I saw this guy hanging from a bar with the back of his head. And then that for me was, was too much. I was like, nah, no, this is insane. Yeah, I'm um, glad you've seen it. I think people don't, like you watch it and the acrobatics, the acrobats make it look so easy and you're supposed to, right? You're the professional, but you're supposed to make it kind of look effortless. But it's people who try it after the show that actually realize how difficult it is. Look, I've not, I didn't need to try it. I just saw that dude hanging and swinging. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, and do you feel like that sort of mentality of, you know, putting your life at risk over and over again helps when you're trying to build a company, like the sort of mental resilience? I think... I think it certainly does. Um, I, I think I'm actually a little bit risk averse as a human, which is funny because of all of the life choices I've decided to make. But uh, my dad likes to say that he takes calculated risks. And I think I'm very similar to that. Uh, kind of like what is the expected payoff or optimal uh, out, optimal outcome for the cost of this risk? Um, and it doesn't make sense to, to go after it. Uh, but yeah, I think People say this as a trope, but I think you have to be a little bit crazy to be a founder, right? Like, why would you wake up every day and decide to get punched in the face as many times as you can before waking up the next day and doing it again? But truly, like, I, I think even if I was handed $100 million tomorrow, I think I would still be doing this. And that's a good sign of me being convic having conviction about what I'm building. And a lot of the founders around me have the same kind of energy and determination. And so it's, it's very inspiring to see those people around me. But I think things like doing Cirque, helped build that muscle of resilience over time. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Although I would argue that I don't think hanging around, I mean, swinging around like several meters above the ground is very risk averse. But other than that, it all makes sense. Got to trust yourself. If <clears throat> trust yourself, then there's no risk. Right, right. True. And can we go a little more into detail of what is WebOC and who is it for, what it's supposed to do? Yeah, so WebSea has evolved quite a bit in the past two years. So we're two years old now, which is great. I'm very excited for the company's progress. You know, when we first started the company, the vision is the same as it is today. And the overarching vision is protecting your digital assets. Uh, your digital assets aren't just blockchain. Like We're specifically targeting blockchain because it has a monetary tie to it. But if you think about your digital life and your legacy, it's social media. It's all of the photos you own. It's all the data that you have online that is yours and owned by you, right? And eventually over time, I think that that's going to become more and more valuable and more and more important. Like we're already seeing houses being sold as NFTs. We're starting to see car, deal, uh, car titles being represented on chain. So that's the future we envision and that we think is coming. And so to build for this, we started to build tools for self-custody because assuming that users are going to be in a more decentralized world, you're going to have 
ownership of your keys and the responsibilities, you need support for that. So we started building these support type tools. So what Webacy today is we have a consumer facing platform, and then we also allow third parties like other companies and other platforms to integrate the services that we provide and the technology we built to better serve their end users. So it comes across as three pillars. We help you assess risk, monitor assets, and act in case of emergency. So on the assessment side, uh, we actually aggregate a lot of on-chain safety-related data and security data from both partners and our own, and we run intelligent algorithms on it, basically ML, AI. I don't want to use those buzzwords, but that it is primarily what it is. Uh, and then we're able to bring insights about risk and risk mitigation to end users and customers. So we can tell you if something in your, in your wallet or your behavior is kind of risky, and maybe you should take a look at that. So risk of getting hacked, risk of... Uh, doing something malicious, risk of something in your wallet being malicious, and so on. On the monitoring side, we do real-time notifications for activity in your wallet. So this kind of answers the question of how do you know what's happening in your wallet? If you don't use us, you usually don't unless you go on Etherscan or you open up MetaMask and something has changed. So we tell you immediately when something happens. And the last thing is action. So we have created a panic button for emergency evacuation if something goes wrong. Uh, we have a backup wallet if you lose access. A lot of times you'll hear about people losing their seed phrase, losing their private keys. Uh, so we've built a totally no access solution to that. So we never take private keys. We never take your seed phrase. It's all self-custodied. And then finally, we have a crypto will for on-chain inheritance. Cool. So that's pretty much three to four products in one. Yeah, we like to think of it as a security suite because one, just one mm. thing alone doesn't help. Like your entire security and safety stack, it's going to be multiple things, right? Because you're you're a human, so you're very complicated, and there's multiple entry points. Because blockchain is not a very sophisticated technology yet. Right. So about the risk too. How do you analyze what's a malicious transaction, and in what part of the you what? Um, what part of the process of like signing a transaction does that tool come into place? It is after signing a transaction and or like when I'm about to sign a transaction, how do you know that transaction is not good? What things are you looking for and how do you collect that data? Yeah, this is a great question. So we, we take data from a variety of different sources. So some of them are third party sources, like partners that we work with directly. And some of them are directly us scraping the blockchain and adding our own data into the mix too. And so we aggregate all of it so we have the best sources from everywhere. So it could be things like, is it on the OFAC list? At the very baseline level, is it a sanctioned address that is known to be associated with an organization that you do not want touching your platform or your DAP or sending money to and so on? That's baseline. And then we look at things like one hops or two hops. So has this wallet interacted with a wallet that is on the list or has been deemed malicious? Or three hops away, has this one been sent a ton of money in the past by a wallet that's been deemed malicious. And not just sanctioned addresses, it's also addresses that have deployed things like malicious phishing smart contracts. Or maybe they've deployed a spam token or a smart contract token itself that the token is a, a fake uh, name of a different token that is real. So for example, like a fake wrapped ETH token contract, right? And these are all things that are in our database and are being fed by partners that maintain this risky list. And then on your second question about where in the transaction stack we live. So right now we do our most impactful analysis on historical data. So what have you done in the past and in your behavior in the past tra transactions that you've made since the beginning of time of your wallet? 
Uh, we do have endpoints for things like ass assessing risk before transaction. So you can tell us what wallet are you sending money to? What are you interacting with? What smart contract are you uh, calling a function on? And then you can run your own. And this is through our APIs for partners. Uh, but we don't have a wallet, ex like we don't have an extension on your browser. We don't ask you to download anything like that. And so we don't do pre-transaction simulation like you might see from other companies that are doing great work in this space. Okay, so it would be more of a less warning sign as if, let's say, you sign something that could be malicious. You're going to let the user know in case there's time for him to make a withdrawal or cancel that transaction, for example. Right. So we can notify you as soon as it happens, we send you that notification and that risk assessment is included in the notification. So if you did make a risky contract call, you're going to know and then you can go into Webacy, hit the panic button and save as many funds as possible. I see. I see. So that one specifically is more like a less resource kind of action. It's kind of like a oh shit button. Yeah, it's been called an oh shit button. Uh, actually, just the other day, uh, someone in the in the Web3 world that's quite well known was able, was able to recover a significant portion of his funds using the panic or oh shit button. Uh, so we're, great, we're grateful that it's being utilized, but we just need more people to actually know about it so they can use it as like a like a last resort or an action item if something goes wrong. Cool. And you say that can be used if you lose your keys as well. So how does that work? Because obviously, if you lose your keys, you can't sign a transaction. So what, what's the mechanism behind it? Yeah. So thank you for asking this, because it gives me another prompt to be able to say that we don't take private keys or we don't take seed phrases or anything like that. And that's because our tech works through smart contracts. So what's going on under the hood is that you as a user, you come to the platform. We're really just a UI. And what you're doing when you set up the backup wallet and the panic button is you're deploying a smart contract that's owned by your wallet and your wallet only. So WebSC, we can't touch it, basically. We can't make any changes. Only your owner <clears throat> wallet can do anything to edit the approvals on that smart contract. And so as a user, you get to pick which assets you want to protect. Because at this point, all of us have spam tokens in our wallets, unfortunately. So you can protect just the high value ones or just the ones you really care about to a backup wallet. And that backup wallet, we recommend that you use one that's untouched. So personally, I use my cold storage hardware wallet that has never touched my computer or the internet or anything. So I know that it's safe. Uh, and then if I wanted to recover it at that point, then I'd use my backup wallet to recover the funds from the original wallet. So you're kind of pre-signing. It's like a pre-approved transaction uh, so that in case of certain things happening, you're able to call those functions and take the action that you need. Okay, so it's, a, it's more like a pull instead of a push. Exactly. So the backup okay. wallet, it's the same as the panic button, exactly. Okay, okay. That makes sense. And now about the last component, I think, that transferring your assets after you pass, like, how does that work? Because, you know, blockchain is deterministic, so you can't really have outside input to it properly so how did you guys how are you guys managing like how do you find out if that person is actually not alive anymore great question so the crypto will uh we don't use like an oracle that you have to upload a death certificate to or anything like that we actually do like a passive monitoring system as a proof of life so you as a user you can hook up all the wallets that are associated with you if you want and we monitor outbound transactions. So transactions from your wallet that require you to be alive, to click there and sign things, right? So you don't have to come to us every month and say, hey, I'm alive, hey, hey I'm alive, because that model doesn't work for most people. Uh, you can set the duration, but 
as of default, we set 12 months of complete inactivity across all of your wallets as a red flag for us. And so that in that case, we'll start to notify you if you gave us any personal information, you don't have to. There's a grace period, again, a customizable amount of time where we try to contact you. And at the end of that period, plus the inactivity period, that's when we trigger the dead man switch. Uh, and this is kind of a misnomer because nothing actually happens when that dead man switch is triggered. Just at that point, your beneficiaries that you've pre-assigned are able to now recover assets that were left to them. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's not too complicated of, of a system, but I'm glad you asked because it's quite different from other uh, ways that you might think it works, uh, but it's based on that time trigger and on-chain monitoring. So it's also like a pool system instead of a push system again. Exactly. It's a double opt-in since your beneficiaries then have to come and retrieve the funds. And so, you know, worst case scenario, assuming that you set beneficiaries that are trustworthy, they know you're still alive, right? And so it's not going to, nothing's going to move in that situation. And what if, for example, one of my wallets is a smart contract wallet that has some um, sort of um, integration with other DeFi components is that in any way integrated with other protocols or has the option to be customized? Because a lot of my funds, for example, could be in another protocol or like in Compound or any other protocol. Does, does it work with those type of protocols or would it only work for the funds that are just in the wallet itself? This is a great question. We are working on figuring out a solution. Uh, so at this point, there's a lot of different DeFi protocols and we've gotten a lot of requests from people saying, I have staked ETH, you know, what do I do with that? How do I do, deal with like this NFT that I left in a liquidity pool that I'm trying to build APY on? So right now, since we, we don't take your seed phrase, we can't call the functions to pull these assets out of there, right? Um, but we're working, we're, we're doing a lot of research and development around like triggering the actual recovery or if we can detect that there's like a collateral token within your wallet and being able to actually track that down it's a lot more complicated with a lot more edge cases than i think people initially think about uh, so we are working on it but right now we can only move assets that are directly in your wallet at the time of when they are transferred uh, but we are looking into those things because i know DeFi is um it could be a huge market in terms of tooling for people who are worried about things like liquidation or even tools that don't have to do with hacks and scams and things like that yeah, I imagine it would be really complicated because the different types of integrations you'd have to consider is not like there's one big DeFi protocol and then you just hook up into it some sort of solution. There's hundreds and probably soon thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of things. But I think maybe doing the same kind of uh, system where the beneficiary can pull those assets somehow and having a global approval. I have no idea how that, how that would work on a simple implementation. So yeah, good luck. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We'll need it if we want to solve for that. <laughs> and how does the future for WebSC looks like beyond that integration? What, what else do you see as in the vision for this tool or the company? I think the best part of being in blockchain is that it's changing every single day. So it's like every day there's a new horizon to look after and it keeps growing in size, right? And so there's a lot of new ideas that the team is throwing around. Uh, some solid things for the next six months include things like enhancing the risk score, getting the risk score integrated in more of our products. And of course, things like multi-chain, right? So as a company, we've started on Ethereum. Uh, we're going to start serving other chains too, because there's a ton of volume on there. 
uh, and then building out better tooling for people who have digital assets and want to protect them. And so that's uh, the more people come into the space, the more people we're going to serve and the more ideas we can come up with for exciting things to help them. And so that's what we're working on. Uh, if people have ideas of what they want us to build, our Discord's always open. My DMs are always open. But we've got a ton in the R&D bucket that we're working on that's pretty exciting. But again, like I get new ideas every day from just being on Twitter or being in the blockchain space in general. So it's it's super fun to be in the space right now. Um, what is the market size for a tool like this? How do you assess it? Because we're mainly targeting consumers and not really protocols itself. Well, ideally, we'd like to serve everyone who owns crypto. That's the that's the big goal. And then it's not just, again, like I said in the beginning, it's not just blockchain assets that are digital assets. Uh, we want to enable a, like a future that's full of digital freedom. And I think that security is necessary for feelings of freedom. Like if you don't feel secure in, in your regular life, you don't feel free to pursue things that you're excited about or that you're interested in. And I think the same comes with digital freedom too. And so that's the, that's the big vision. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think what you guys are building is super cool and it's definitely a step in the right direction if we want to have true self-custody in a way that prevents idiots like me from shooting themselves in the foot. And I try to, <laughs> and I try to get a hold of the code, but I couldn't find it. It doesn't seem like you guys have a public repo. Is that a reason for this? Is is can I find a code anywhere? Our smart contracts are on chain, so you can just look at those. Uh, but our code base for the DAP itself, that's private, um, and there's no necessary reason for that. But I think in general, just the harder it is to crack something, the better. And so why why not? keep it private because we're a private company. We're not an open source project. And so it's limited us from getting things like some grants that are for open source projects only. But in the long term, I think that our smart contracts are public. And so that's really the component that people need to worry about in terms of safety and security. But we get multiple audits every year. We have really great audit partners. Um, we do all of our own checks and balances on our end too. And so repos private. We might make it public at some point, but there's no plans to right now. But that's how it is. Yeah, I think that maybe making the smart contracts more easily to find could be beneficial for security in the long term. Obviously, it doesn't you don't have to make it open source. You can just have your own license, for example, like Uniswap has, which is you know, you, you can't really just use it for commercial uses because I think the more eyes you can get on your smart contracts, the less likelihood um something's going to go by and in relation to the auditing partners, I don't know if WebSE has um, the breath that it maybe should have on the the auditing quality. So have you considered looking at widening the range from other places that you you work with, like getting audits from other firms that might be a bit trustworthy? I mean, we certainly have talked to pretty much all of them at this point. And I'm aware of the bad image that a lot of people based, especially in the United States or Western countries, have about CERDIC. But I'm also spending a lot of time in Asia. And the reputation of CERDIC in Asia and other regions is actually quite good. So I'm, I'm wondering where that dichotomy comes from, because a lot of companies in Asia love CERDIC. A lot of companies in the States have this bad, poor reputation around them. We find that they're actually quite diligent in the way that they work with us. 
Uh, but again, like totally right that it's best for each company to have multiple different audits from multiple different methods, right? So we don't just do public companies. A lot of these companies tend to be kind of rubber stampy if you pay them enough. Uh, we don't want that. We want actual security audits, people looking at our code. Certic does do that. And so we decided to go with them for the last two audits. But again, like you're like having multiple audits from multiple different sources is great. We also work with private auditors, like individual auditors to get names on our code or eyes on our code too. And we do a bug bounty too. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. I would encourage you to display which auditors, which individual auditors you work with, because that definitely plays a big role into assessing the risk. Uh, me personally, I wouldn't use something that was audited by Certic as a smart contract auditor. And security is a, is a bit tricky in the sense that reputation and actual delivery of service sometimes is hard to discern the difference. And Certic has definitely, uh, you know, great marketing and they serve a lot of customers. But then when you look into more detail of like what happened to their past audits, and I'm not trying to uh, point fingers at anyone. So, I mean, even at the end of the day, though, the only services that use smart contracts that need to be audited by a third party service, like uh, like the smart contract auditing firms, is the backup and panic. So the Wallet Watch is totally not even blockchain associated. Like you're not signing any approvals to it so that you can use without having to worry and then the risk assessment too, that's completely offline. And so it's not like you're putting anything on chain or need to worry about any kind of smart contract uh, vulnerabilities that you might think there are. Yeah, yeah. The, the least amount of possible hacks you can have. I mean, the least um, contact points you can have, the better it is. And you mentioned your bug bounty. Where can people find that bug bounty if they want to look into it? So that is on Certic. I know your opinion okay. on Certic, but that's where you can find it. Yeah, no, it's it's good to know. You know, um, the the more ways people can look into your code, the better it is. And I have a funny question: Is that if you found like a one genie and you could ask him any question, what would you ask him? And like he could answer anything. Maybe when the next bull run is going to start. I think we've all been waiting for it. Um, how how long do you think that's going to be? I, I don't know. I've heard estimates anywhere from a couple months from now to next year. Uh, but I, I'm personally the kind of type who likes to uh, not know the future because I think it's more exciting to to find out. Um, but but I mean, in ca in the case of the company, it's good to know when things might pick back up. Yeah, surely, surely, and especially for two like you that. It's entirely reliant on users and actual users. It's not like you just you can just build a hype train and get everyone to sign to your scammy token, and it doesn't matter what kind of um, run it is. If you get people to sign up, it's good. You actually need proper users doing things. So yeah, I I see how that's gonna be really good for your company in particular or any company that's building proper infrastructure for security. And on that note, I wanted to ask if you have considered integrations with streaming protocols, token streaming protocols. I know there's probably a lot of things that you're looking at right now, but if I may just 
throw something else at you to look at token stream protocols, integrations into WebSE because I think they're going to increasingly be important for just like general finances. I don't know if you're aware of what they are and I can tell you if that's the case. I mean, do you have some in particular that you like that you want us to look into? Um, yeah, I think Sabdier is really good. I've worked with them before and there's also Superfluid. I haven't worked with them, but they're also good. So maybe looking to those two could be worth it. Um, are you familiar with what they're supposed to do? Yes, we've talked to both. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And what did you think? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, we. I wish we could build everything. And so there's like, we're a, we're a pretty small team. So we have a, a product roadmap of what we're building, but it's something we're definitely considering. Yeah. Mm, what are the, let's say, top three things you guys are looking into? Because I imagine there's just so much that you could do with a tool like that. It must be hard to prioritize what's the most interesting or the most, let's say, impactful thing you can do as your next step. Well, the biggest thing for us is bringing some of the tools that we have right now to the most amount of users and protecting the most amount of value that we can. And so we're naturally doing that through our organic growth and through general growth. Um, so improving the platform and user experience is one. Multi-chain, again, is going to help us get to a lot more people and communities. Um, and yeah, third, it's it's kind of open. Like we're, we have a ton on the roadmap that we can build and that we're currently working on, but we'll, we're going to see where things go and we're, we're going to build for what people want and find value in. What part of the UI you think is the most challenging? Uh, I think Web3 UI is just kind of tough in general, right? Like uh, there's a lot of trust that needs to be built, built, first of all, on the connect wallet button, right? Like for me, most of the time, I don't connect my wallet to anything that I don't already trust or have looked into myself deeply. Um, so building trust is one big thing. But I mean, Web3 UI is, you look at some of these projects that, are very popular and the UI is just horrible. Um, and so I don't think there's any one thing, but building trust is one, um, just making it a little bit easier to use and visually appealing, I think is going to help get more people into the space. But um, I mean, you see some companies doing things like account abstraction. So instead of actually bringing your own wallet, you create a wallet through your email there, and then that's all kind of web two. So we might see some migration back to web two design in that sense too, but we, we shall see. We're, we're sticking with self-custody for now. Yeah, and what are some other ways that you guys are trying to increase the trust in general? I mean, one is through just brand, right? Like we've been around for more than two years now. We have around 150 million assets protected through our monitoring system. We have over 300,000 300, notifications sent per month. Um, so the, the growth is there. We have really excellent investors from both the rounds that we've raised. Um, good track record from the team members. Uh, so you know that there's real people behind it. A lot of the projects that we're used to in crypto is like undoxed founders that have a PFP of a cartoon character, right? And so these are, you know, you know who's building it, um, you know their track record and what they've historically built and accomplished and so on. So all things, social angles, social proof, actual code stability, length of time running, all the things that are included. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's an important part, especially, you know, because... This industry is so rife with all the scammers and all the shady, shady businesses. And it's sometimes hard to cut through all that. And yeah, the more effort you can put into that, the more you can send out, especially in the bear market. I think companies that really try to break through the bear market are going to be in a really good position when the bull run comes. 
because it's just gonna be known like from everyone and it's just gonna be the the next thing and yeah survival is super key right now uh but also you see companies that are still doing pump and dump token sales that are doing great uh but i think there's a good cohort of people that are actually solving problems and building infrastructure for the next many many decades to come and so those are the companies that you want to look at uh and stick with while we keep going what are your favorite other companies that you see building cool things right now i mean i, I like how uniswap has really just come out as a like a solid leader. They keep innovating. Uh, they have a really good ecosystem around them and super cool team. That's one. Um, there's a ton of companies in the security space. Uh, would be here forever if we named them all. Um, there's companies that are working on on-chain protocol messaging. Um, there are companies like Farcaster and Lens that are working on decentralized social protocols that are interesting to look at. Um, yeah, I mean, there's... I, I'm personally spending quite a bit of time in the ecosystem, so I learn about new projects every day, which are fun to fun to look at. And the founders are typically very, very smart and driven too. Yeah, that's why I ask because there's always so much happening that I feel like I always miss things. So trying to use founders as filters for good protocols is always a good way to to figure out like what is she looking to and what is interesting. Yeah, is there any... myself that I have not used FriendTech yet. I don't know what your take is on it, but I, I have not uh, given in to downloading it or to, to adding it to my home screen. I did download it, and I think it's sort of like a good prototype for something that could be meaningful. I think as is in its current form, is a like a bit too ponzi, too scammy. The the function. The exponential function of the price is way too pump and dump like <coughs> sorry and but I feel like the the basic idea that you can in a trustless way get access to someone and the access to someone increases in value the more people want to talk to them fundamentally it makes sense and it's cool but I don't think we quite have the right way to implement it yet so overall it's cool but it's not there yet like there's definitely a lot of improvements that need to to happen and i did sign up and i bought myself a few shares of me just to see the price increase and it is it is interesting and it's a fun concept that you know it's something that you can't really do like that without the blockchain technology and i think anything that place to that part where you can't really do it without the blockchain even if it's like stupid it's kind of cool in a way just like a silly little game if that makes sense yeah it was what funny a- to see some of the activity like spike over weekends because we're all humans using this right and so people finish work and they get on it just to play around with it so you see the activity spike and then you have life cycle changes like when all of the only fans things came in and people were making um People are relating the two and seeing that change too. There's a lot of commentary around it, but it, it's good to see um, people making experiments in the space. And I think this is one big experiment that we're all kind of looking at, which is very interesting. But the more people can build cool stuff, it's it's good to keep that excitement in the space. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And the more people we can bring into the space that's outside of the, the crypto world, you know, bring people that are not super nerds into this, it helps into just changing the um, stigma around the industry that everything is just a fraud and 
is just like a scam land. You know, I think anything that does that to crypto somehow is a step in the right direction. Yeah, what what are your thoughts into into that kind of field of more generally like the social media of Web three? What because it seems like a really good idea, but I haven't seen a, a protocol that it's quite there yet. I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, we at WebSC, we're really trying to change the narrative of a lot of this. Like if you look at traditional media, um, all of the reporting or like I would say 95% of the reporting about crypto is super negative, right? It's like this hack happened and like the whole ecosystem lost like $2 billion this year in, in hacks and scams or North Korea is taking money out of the ecosystem and using it for their efforts or all of these really, really negative things. Uh, but there are companies in the space that are doing things that are actually great, like bringing new financial opportunities to spaces and countries that don't have them or did not have them before crypto was an option or bringing new job opportunities to people who lost jobs during the pandemic or all of these stories or even companies like ours that are building safety and security risk mitigation tools to make the space better and more usable. Uh, and so these are types, these are the types of stories that we want people to talk more about and share more on social media. But I think a lot of us like, uh, like you know, like clickbait type of things. And when you look at the American news, it's a lot of negativity all the time, not just crypto. It's like negative story after negative story. And that's what people listen to. Um, so I think it's all kind of on us to share some of the happier stories and growth oriented stories over time. But like, we're just human, right? We're going to fall into a lot of the same patterns that we saw in Web 2 and Web 1. Uh, I wasn't alive during those times, but we're going to probably see that. It's what I hear from the old guys I talk to. But yeah, I mean, we, we try to push um, articles on all the good growth and positivity coming out in the space. Yeah, I think it's just human nature in general. We always trying to um, link towards to the negative side. I think that's a survival ship bias. You know, it's a lot more worth in the sense to be worried about be eating by a lion than not caring and then getting eaten. So I think we just have to figure out a way how to you stop bad things from happening in crypto altogether and only then people are going to flock in without really having second thoughts and if that's one of the main reasons i started the podcast because security is such a necessary part for all of this to happen but it's just so not sexy like the last thing a founder has on its mind when he's trying to get to market is like getting an audit or trying to make sure no one can hack his protocol because most people are on their happy fat path on their mind and they're just like, yeah, this is going to be fine. You know, like I looked at it and it's good. And then everyone loses all their money again. And everyone's like, oh, you know, and if we can change that to make security look sexy and something founders can brag about and make other founders jealous about it and be like, yeah, I have like the most safe protocol and investors look at it that way. And it becomes more of a even more of a marketing point, that's something that's going to help the industry mature and less hacks happen in general. Yeah, I think security and safety is something we all take for granted. Um, like if you think about our real world security, like when you're a kid, you don't learn to lock the doors and you don't learn to do all the things or like look both ways across the street. Like eventually you learn to do those things for yourself, but your parents are protecting you, right? And so from an early age, you're not learning a lot of the things that might be oriented with safety or security. 
And then now when it comes to even things like your computer, we just take for granted that we're looking at websites that are safe and that the company has secured them for us. So when it comes to crypto, like we just, we're used to bank accounts where if something goes wrong, we can call up our bank and say, hey, this was a malicious charge. Don't charge me for this. But there's none of that in crypto, right? And so it's a whole new reality that we're not responsible for our own safety and a lot of people are not used to it. Um, and so, yeah, the best way to learn is to get hacked or get scammed. And that's when you wake up to the importance of it. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't want that. Or fortunately, we, we don't want that to happen to everyone. So that's why we're building tooling for it. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, you can shill security as much as you want, but people, it's a mindset change. And I think people don't understand the, the depth of responsibility you now have uh, for decentralization. Like people are saying, yeah, I want decentralization, but I don't know if, how many people really do because that's a lot of responsibility to take on. That's why account abstraction is so sexy for a lot of people because they don't have to deal with it anymore. But then you think and you realize now you have to trust the people that created these account abstracted wallets, right? So it's huge trade-offs. Um, we want people to think and learn about self-custody. So there's better tooling for it using us and other tools like us. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see where the space ends up. It's very exciting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, we humans are not trained for digital goods, as in like feeling that there's any urgency, you know, it's so detached from how we came to this world and it's easy to understand physical security and, you know, I need to lock my door and I need to look across the street, otherwise I might die. But when you're talking about numbers on the screen and just like, it's hard to, to pass it on and be like, yeah, that's your life. You have to treat it as much respect as you do when you're crossing the street. And as the world becomes more and more digital, I think people are going to learn that, that more from a young age, and it's going to become part of, you know, everyday life, like locking your door, because we're more or less one of the first generations that have grown up with this internet being a thing, right? Our parents didn't, my, most of their lives, internet wasn't a thing. And we didn't get educated in that matter. But when people our age started getting kids and stuff, they're going to learn that these things is important, like, you know, passwords and all the things. So I think it's also like a, a generational cultural issue that it's so hard to address because it takes, you know, decades or more. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like you, you think about when you try to explain a technology concept of a computer to your parents, there's a change in difference there. And now we're going to have blockchain babies that know how to bridge and know how to stake way better than we do and are going to be teaching us stuff. Um, so that, that'll be funny uh, to see all of the, the blockchain babies be born. Uh, but that it's what we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited and I am not clear on where that future lands. And so we're, again, we can ask the genie or we can find out. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's just like so many different paths and so many different ways that could, this could happen. It's just, it's going to be a fun, fun ride to see everything unravel. Is there like one particular thing that you'd be really keen to see it happen in any sort of like thing that um like any big gap between digital and digital as in using crypto for example like let's say all houses are now on crypto or like all like cars titles are on crypto is there anything on that nature that 
you would be like super excited to see happen? I do have an answer for this. Um, it's one of the reasons I really liked blockchain from the beginning. Um, so I, the one, the thing I want to see is truly on-chain identity that's representative and and respected around the world. Uh, so I personally think that the whole travel system is super messed up and the whole proof of identity system is super messed up, right? Like when you do or sign up for new things, sometimes you're asked to like, look at, okay, pick which address you used to live at. I have moved more times than I can count. And I have more addresses listed and associated with my name than I can count. I can't remember, right? Like my, my ID address is different from the address I live at now just because I move so much. And so this is something that even when you're crossing borders or immigrating into a country, why don't we have our on-chain identity associated with our real identity so that we can access things easier or be approved for a credit card easier? These are all just things that um, I think could be potentially solved with blockchain. It's a distant future and there's a lot of issues to think about uh, when it comes into truly building something like that. But that's something I would love. I would love to not carry my passport uh, and have, not have to worry about getting a visa to enter another country and things like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I moved a lot as well. And it's such a big pain. Visas and every country has their own thing. And oh, when you're trying to get a place to live in, like lease a place and they're like, oh, where have you lived for the past six months or a year? And then you have this huge list of things that you did. And you're like, how is this maintainable? It's just so stupid. It's so well, so poorly coordinated. Like, all the information is there. Couldn't it just be in one one chunk and you just like plug it in something. So I think that comes with a lot of challenges as well. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about ZK. Cause it holds the answers to a lot of this if you know we can implement it in a proper manner, then a lot of problems will be solved. I think ZK has the potential to go far beyond crypto as well and that's i mean no wonder it's such a hot topic but yeah it's it's one of those technologies that is gonna eat the world up i think as well yeah for people who are um who care about privacy which everyone should it's a very exciting um new technology to look at are you looking at any projects in particular in the zk space not at the moment not deeply but um mostly interested in projects like Aztec that, you know, it's not only used as a rope solution, but more like as a the privacy sort of things, because I think the blockchain as is right now, it's a good start, but the end game is definitely the end game with ZK on it. We, because right now we don't have any privacy on the blockchain. You can easily track down where the money is coming from and all, every transaction is public. And when you're thinking about governments and the control they can exert over those type of systems is really not good. But when you have something that by default, it has the privacy and it can't really be tampered with, then we have something that you can really use as a base layer for major economic activity and, you know, fostering more dynamic and free sort of relationships between commerces and people. And yeah, I feel like it will be a lot, you'll be way more friendly on a long-term scale for the economy than close down. <coughs> um, yeah. 
no close down I mean, but even, yeah even use cases like voting like think about the united states where you have to go in person to a location and you're like filling out this paper it's absolutely ridiculous um i was recently at stanford blockchain week which has recently been renamed science of blockchain conference uh but it'll always be stanford blockchain week um but they were talking a lot about zk there's a lot of research going into it and then there's a lot of talks about intense which i think will be a topic of conversation coming up in q4 of this year and probably early next year too and how that is both related to zk and also just implemented within the space too um a lot of room for arbitrage i think i think the mev, MEV experts are going to be really happy about new projects coming out with that but um that's a different conversation i guess yeah there's another big issue with zk is like arbitrage and hacks as well because in zk it would be the kind of thing that you would get hacked and you wouldn't know why yeah. so yeah it comes with lots of problems and I haven't had the time to dive too deeply into intent. So maybe you could give me a little crash course. The easiest way I know how to explain it is that you as a user have an intent to do something. Like maybe you want to swap like ETH for something else. And you're giving the system that intention of what you want to do. And then it doesn't matter how it's fulfilled. And then the system can choose like the most optimal way to fulfill it or whatever. Right. So that's kind of the high level explanation that I'm able to give, but I also have not looked into research or what kind of projects are working on with it either. So I probably can't give a very technical explanation under the hood. Yeah, that's one of the things I love and hate about blockchain or crypto industry is that there's so much cool stuff happening that you never get to see all this cool stuff happening. But there's always so much cool stuff happening that you're like always excited to learn new things. It's a love and hate relationship. Yeah, it's a fire hose. Like you, you look at, you stop looking at Twitter for a day and you've missed like half of the things that are going on. Um, so if you're a founder building something, you're really in your own bubble. And so that's why I try to go and like talk to people like you or talk to people just in the real world to see like, did something happen while I was heads down working on something else? Yeah, the FOMO is really real because you do miss things. It's not like, oh, I should know what's going on. You know, like if you don't know what's going on, you're going to be behind in like a week. Yeah, like you hear about people going to Burning Man um, and they're completely out of the loop. I have investors that are coming back now or just friends that came back. They have no idea what's happening. Yeah, it's crazy, especially in my area with more security focus, like, you know, to do with uh, hacks and things like this. It's if you miss one day, one protocol that you're using might not be alive anymore and then you lost all your money. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's entertaining for sure. It never, yeah, it never ceases to entertain anyone involved. And it's kind of weird as well when you mention that you work in crypto to someone, some like basically anyone outside of crypto, because they're like, oh, like they look at you like you're homeless. Like the amount of times that I've like, oh yeah, I work in crypto. And they're like, oh, are you doing okay? I'm like, yes, like, I'm doing fine. It's not that bad. It's kind of bad, but it's not exactly. that bad. They look at you like you just told them like someone in your family just died, right? It's like, uh, yeah. Do you need, can I help you, you know? It's, Do you need a hug? Really yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a talk with an uncle lately and he's like, oh, and what are you doing? You're still doing your blockchain thing? And I was like, yeah, still working, you know, in the blockchain space. And like, really? Oh, it must be tough. I'm like, no, it's, it's it's okay and it's just so hard especially for like the older people to kind of like even remotely have an idea of what's happening it just kind of makes me sad a little bit you know 
Yeah, I mean, they're they're in their own worlds just like we are, but my parents definitely have no idea what I do. And yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, same. It's, it's just kind of heartbreaking because I love to talk about people, what I do, and like, you know, trying to be somewhat relatable, but then it's so hard to bridge that gap. You're like, oh, yeah, and then I was looking at this protocol that did this and this, and they you just no no chance of anything connecting there in between their brains and that's why you started a podcast because you then you can talk to people and be relatable <laughs> to people who care about blockchain yeah actually i was saying that i wanted to make security more sexy and stuff but that's all like a cover i actually just felt like i needed to talk to people that i could actually talk to exactly this is yeah therapy. this is your free therapy <laughs> exactly because i'm spending all day here looking at code blah blah, blah. And then by the end of the day, I haven't spoken to anyone and I started feeling kind of crazy. I was like, I need to talk to people. I was like, maybe I should start a podcast. That's probably like the healthiest way that I can do this without going to the street and like just trying to ap approach randoms and be like, hey, do you want to talk about blockchain? <laughs> I mean, come to San Francisco. I don't know where you're based right now, but there's plenty of people talking about blockchain here still. Yeah, it's a little bit far away. So I'm in Australia at the moment. So that's probably like a... 20 hour flight so it's a bit out of the out of the way for me but maybe 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 sometime next year i might do some traveling around yeah in melbourne or where are you gonna visit oh well i'm in i'm australia right now i've been based here for the past couple of years and i been in the gokos for a lot of the time recently i don't know if you're familiar with australia um, yeah, I lived there for a few, mo few months, but it's a beautiful area that you're in. Lucky you. Oh, really? How come? Yeah. With Cirque. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know it's beautiful here. And yeah, it's kind of hard to leave. It's just so nice. But the world is out there as well. It's kind of like a... It's hard as well because I want to stay here because it's so nice, but I want to travel. It's I have such hard problems in my life, you know. Yeah, it's pretty tough. <laughs> pretty tough I feel bad for you yeah it is it is what about you where are you based uh so I'm in San Francisco but I have not been spending too much time here I I was talking to a friend the other day and I think if you followed all of just the crypto conferences around the world you pretty much never need to to, to visit like a home base like you can just go from Austin to Singapore for token or Korea blockchain week first so go to Korea then Singapore and then you go to New York for Masari Right. And then you just bounce around and you never need an apartment. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about doing maybe next year. I'm thinking about like after my place here ends, is a good excuse to just go around and try to live the nomad life. And I feel like I might do it, actually. But I don't know. I'm still on the fence. I don't know. I'll see what to do. I might. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's definitely on the cards. Um, well, it's been a pleasure having you here. I'm keen to see how Abacis grows with the industry and like if you manage to solve all the problems that it's trying to solve. It's a really exciting way to ensure that we can actually onboard more, more users. Thanks for having me. I hope we are also able to protect more users over time and build some tools that it keeps everyone safe. Awesome.